I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Views listeners, on this spooky season edition of the program, we're going to be diving into the cinematic world of Spanish horror icon Paul Nashi, who portrayed such legendary genre figures as The Mummy, The Hunchback, Mr. Hyde, Count Dracula, and perhaps most famously, the Wolfman, hearkening back to the Universal Studios chillers of the 1930s and 40s, Nashi cranked out numerous monster mashes from the late 1960s into the 1980s. Since then, his cult following has only grown, and joining us to attest to that are Troy Gwynn, 
and Rod Barnett of the Nashi Cast Podcast. We'll be discussing numerous topics, including what makes Nashi's movies special, Nashi's growing up under the dictatorship of General Franco, his thematic obsessions and later bitterness with the film industry as he got older, and much, much more. If you've never come across the filmography of Paul Nashi, hopefully this conversation will make you consider giving his films a go. And with that being said, let's get right to it with Troy Gwynn and Rod Barnett of The Nashi Cast. of psychotic women? What do they do to a man in the house of psychotic women? What else? Stop it! Stop it! House of Psychotic Women from Independent International Rated R Under 17 Not Admitted Without Parent Welcome to Parallax Views. Uh, two guests, not just one, but two that I'm very excited to be speaking with. Rod Barnett and Troy Gwynn of the Nashi cast. And for people that don't know, it's a podcast dealing with the man who's been called the Spanish Lon Chaney. Paul Nashi, how are you guys doing tonight? Not too badly. Yeah, and okay, now that I'm off the road and, and uh, <laughs> out of trap, out of traffic jams and all that. So yes, uh, doing very well. Happy to be here. So for my listeners, uh, I want to get into how you guys were introduced to the films of Paul Nashi, but I think I may have a few listeners that are unfamiliar with who Paul Nashi was. And I think he's a very interesting figure. I think more people should learn about, you know, international cinema and Paul Nashi is, you know, just fascinating to me because he's sort of described as the Spanish Lon Chaney Jr., uh, especially because he did all those werewolf films. But, you know, his movies aren't exactly like uh, uh, the universal horrors. There's a little bit more uh, risque elements. So he occupies a very interesting, I would say, bizarre and wonderful space within the world of international genre cinema. But maybe you guys can give an outline of who Paul Nashi was for folks that are new. Sure. Uh, Paul Nashi was a Spanish filmmaker. He uh, he did not start out as a filmmaker. He didn't actually get in front of the cameras until uh, he was in his 30s. Uh, well, that's not necessarily true. But regardless, uh, you say that, that his films are uh, not much like the Universal Horror Films, but it is the Universal Horror Films that inspired him to want to make the kinds of movies that he ended up making. Uh, it's yeah, very yeah, I, 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 should, I should clarify, too. I mean, th they are like the Universal Horror Films, but they also have this other element like nudity and things like that. So oh, well, it, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah that, that's that, that, that's from uh, <laughs> that's from getting butts on butts in seats when you start talking about making films in the uh, <laughs> 70s and 80s uh, the the, uh, the added uh, blood guts and uh, breasts are uh, in the occasional you know naked backside as well is uh, 
almost a prerequisite once you move into the 70s, which is a period of time in which he he became the uh, the horror star that he became. The, the thing about Paul Nashi is that uh, at a very young age, he viewed uh, there in Spain where he lived with his family as a young lad. He was taken to a theater and he was shown Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And that left an indelible imprint on him so that years later, uh, when he was uh, unhappy with uh, the, the the life that he was he was having, he was he went to school to be an architect and he was a uh, champion weight weight weightlifter. And uh, he uh, did a number of things, but he wanted to be in the movies one way or another, not necessarily in front of the camera. He had aspirations for different things like that. So he uh, wormed his way into bit roles in uh, large scale Hollywood productions that were shooting in Spain in the early 60s and then slowly got his way into a position where he could present this script that he that he'd been working over for quite some time to a man who just might be willing to produce it. And it was a werewolf movie because anybody who's seen Frankenstein meets the Wolfman can understand why you might want to write a werewolf story. It immediately sets you up the kind of joy that you get when you have a character who's cursed, does not want to be the monster that he becomes and desperately wants to be alleviated from this horrible, horrible fate. But uh, that's the the joy of Paul Nash is that it took him a couple of movies, but pretty quickly out of the gate, once he was writing these movies, he became a he became a star. Now we should point out that uh, in a lot of cases with his movies, you'll note that he's not just the star of the movie; uh, he also wrote them. He wrote the vast majority of the horror movies that he 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 starred in which is a unique thing for any major horror star to talk about. Uh, you know, they're, they're generally not behind the scenes creators. They're actors on the screen, but he became a director. He, he started out as a writer and eventually uh, he was producing his own movies and arranging for production and getting things underway. And uh, that makes him a rather unique creator in this field because he is one of those uh people who had a very long horror career in front of the camera and behind the camera and loved the genre. And uh, it should be noted that uh, uh, while if you know anything about Paul Nashi, it's probably one of his werewolf movies because he played a werewolf in about 12 movies. Wildemir uh, Daninsky. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, and you might ask yourself, that's a weird name for a Spaniard, but uh, there's a story behind that as well. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, Understand that uh, when uh, when 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 Nashi actually that's remember Paul Nashi is a stage name his his real name was Jacinto Molina uh, but he took a stage name because uh, well stories vary but the most likely is that uh, when he was uh, prevailed upon by the producers of his first werewolf movie called The Mark of the Werewolf or The Mar Mark of the Wolfman to uh, star, actually star in the lead role because uh, they really didn't have somebody else that they thought would be appropriate to play the lead character. Um, the, ideas, the, the, the idea of uh, a long, an ongoing series of these things cropped up pretty quickly. And... Uh, well, I think with the, in this case, it was the producer was German. The, yeah. uh, it was a... It's kind of a German-Spanish co-production, I guess. Mostly, more really more German, I think, than anything from Mark of the Wolf. Yeah, pretty much a German production. And, and he and he uh, 
understand they were they were mostly being shot in Spain. Not all of them, but mostly they were being shot in Spain, regardless of where the the uh, the movie might tell you it's taking place. And uh, the thing about shooting movies in Spain is, uh, at the time these were being these were being made, especially at the beginning of the late sixties, all the way through the uh, the mid seventies, uh, Spain was ruled by a dictator, General yes, Franco. Uh, Franco, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't pa- he didn't pass away until sixty uh, seven. I mean, I'm sorry, seventy six or seventy seven. Yeah, I say right around the mid seventies. Yeah. yeah. So uh, during that period of time, one of the uh, one of the things that uh, Although Spain was opening up a little bit more and more as the 60s moved on because the, uh, the economy needed an influx of cash and one of those things was tourism. So the, the society was opening up a little bit. And so one of the things that they did say, though, that you could not do was remember Spain is the perfect place. So nothing bad can happen in Spain. So these movies with monsters ripping people's throats out cannot take place in Spain. So. We have to make our main character not a Spanish character. He's got to be something else. So Nashi settled on Polish. So that's where the name comes from, Valdemar Daninsky. And so we have a Polish werewolf played by a Spanish actor in a German film. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Europe, folks. That's yeah. just the way these <laughs> things happen. <laughs> it's 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 best to just kind of shake your head and go, man, the things that have to happen behind the scenes to get some of these things on celluloid. And he chose the name. Uh, he chose his own stage name, uh, the name Nashi. He chose a Germanic name. It was actually taken from a weightlifter that he admired, uh, uh, a German weightlifter who was uh, big in that profession. And then Paul, he took from, I believe, uh, there was a Pope Paul yeah. at that time that he he took uh, he took the name Paul from for his yeah. first name there. So out of curiosity, how did both of you uh, first come in contact uh, with the films of Paul Nashi? Because I think for the longest time, uh, you know, these were films that were very hard to find. You'd have to go uh, to places like video. Uh, what was it? Video Search of Miami uh, to find these <laughs> yeah. films. Some of them weren't even like subtitled and you'd ha- you'd even have to get like there were fans of these movies that would fan sub them i believe so they were sort of like a hidden treasure for cinephiles well the um oddly enough a handful of the films did make the rounds of american television uh, they don't anymore but they did back in the uh 70s uh, my older brother uh first saw horror rises from the tomb uh, and he he saw it. I didn't get to see it, but he just he just talked on and on about this film that he came across one night on on the UHF channel, uh, watching it in black and white. And of course, obviously, it was heavily cut. But even in even in the heavily cut form, the oddness of the film just really stuck with him. And he kept telling me, "You guys see this film, Horror Rises from the Tomb? If they ever show it again." Of course, in those days, you had no idea when it was going to come around again. Um, but that was the first that. I knew of anybody mentioning a film that I would later come to associate with Paul Nashi. Uh, for myself, uh, my first encounter with Paul Nashi was uh, coming across uh, Mark of the Wolfman, which we talked about earlier, which actually was retitled when it came to America and, and, and got released onto the American drive-in, you know, exploitation circuit, uh, got retitled as Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, even though there is no Frankenstein doctor or monster anywhere in the film. you got a couple of werewolves, a couple of vampires, but no Frankenstein monster. Uh, it's basically because Sam Sherman, who was the, uh, the distributor. It, yeah, the distributor, 
uh, who has wonderful stories about the whole distribution market. If you ever get to hear any Sam Sherman audio commentaries, but he uh, had been he had promised his he had promised his exhibitors a Frankenstein picture, and the film that he was waiting for did not. Uh, uh, there were a lot of problems with it. It, it. it just found it unreleasable at the time. So he had to scrounge around and find a Frankenstein picture. So he found this picture that Paul Nashie had just starred in uh, his first werewolf film called Mark of the Wolfman and just figured I'm going to take this film and, and just somehow finagle it, you know, somehow shoehorn it into the drive-in circuit as a Frankenstein film. And so that's how it ended up with the title Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. I saw I it listed was, it. Go ahead. I was going to say too, uh, just for people that don't know, Sam Sherman is like a legend of oh, yeah. uh, the drive-in days. I mean, the stories you'll get out of Sam Sherman are incredible. You know, this is a guy that would uh, make movies with uh, another sort of drive-in slash grindhouse legend, Al Adamson. And they, they would often, you know, have a movie made and then, you know, reshoot new scenes, re-release it again later under a different title. They did all kinds of crazy uh, sort of like Carney type uh tactics to get their <laughs> films uh out there to the public um and it's just wild they they made a good deal of money doing it too i believe so yeah. oh yeah quite yeah. a bit yeah any of his uh any of his audio commentaries if you could catch them are just incredible insights into that wonderful time that wonder how that worked you know the whole driving distribution business and um so yeah so so i saw this film called frankenstein's bloody terror listed in the paper and uh i actually I think it was coming on right before Godzilla movie, you know? And so I was gearing <laughs> up to watch that. I was like, oh, okay, I'll catch the last, you know, this Frankenstein picture. I turn it on. I see this really cool looking werewolf, a couple of werewolves, a couple of vampires. I'm in heaven. I'm like, oh man, this, this, this is a great monster movie. I've never discovered or never seen before. Where's the Frankenstein monster. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> even though the Frankenstein monster never turned up that last 30 minutes of that film was really my first sight I ever had of, of, of Paul Nashi as a werewolf. And then some of his other films like uh, Count Dracula's Great Love and uh, uh, Vengeance of the Zombie, excuse me, Vengeance of the Mummy, excuse me, uh, uh, came, uh, turned up on the the uh, television circuits too. And so pretty quickly I began to recognize his face as a common actor in these films without really knowing, of course, at that point, just how important he was to Spanish cinema or even the whole, that all these films were really necessarily a representation of Spanish cinema because obviously they were all dubbed into English at that time. So it was really when the, uh, an encyclopedia of horror came out that Phil Hardy, uh, was the editor of, uh, I think the Overlook books, so the Overlook encyclopedia is, 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 I think they were released at one point under that name, but it was an incredible horror encyclopedia. It was the first one I came across that really, really delved deeply into the listing the Euro horror films. And I found out about so many like Jess Franco and Jose Marins and, and Paul Nashi films. And that's really the book that helped me to connect as I would read, you know, about each of these films, who this guy was and starting to realize, Oh man, this guy made all kinds of werewolf movies and other horror movies. And, and not only, you know, was in them, but as Rod said, directed them and wrote them, you know, so that kind of put me on the path of starting to really pay attention to, uh, when the the in the VHS when the great like Rod mentioned to the bootleg, you know the heyday of the VHS bootleg circuit there with with magazines like Psychotronic and Film Threat and all that where you just kind of scour the ads to see people who were who were offering bootleg films and I just started looking for anything that said Paul Nashi on there and started to, you know to acquire the tapes and just kind of started connecting the dots on this guy. And so Rod, yeah, what, oh what, well, what yeah, for me. For me, it was it was a little different. I learned of Paul Nashi uh, in print before I ever got to see one of the movies. Uh, I was uh, 
a voracious movie nut at an early age. I did not realize until, you know, years later that, uh, this was something that you could do to the extent, to the extent where you would actually, you know, lose sleep friends and, uh, <laughs> you know, the human beings around you who think you've gone crazy. But what I was doing a lot in the, uh, starting in the late eighties was I was reading every weird, often self-published movie magazine that I could run across. And luckily at that time, there were a number of stores that had huge magazine racks with just every magazine in the world that they could get their hands on places like tower records. And so in tower records, I discovered magazines like video watchdog psychotronic and just slews of others that sometimes would have information about movies that, I mean, your average, your average issue of psychotronic, probably had a review of at least 20 to 25 movies that I immediately wanted to see and had absolutely no way to see. Well, that's how I learned about Paul Nashi was reading about his movies in those magazines. And so those were my first inklings. And then I got very lucky at a certain point somewhere in the, uh, I want to say just right at the beginning of the nineties when uh, scouring you know, the mom and pop VHS video stores, you know, the little independent video stores where they would uh, they would hang on to videotapes forever because, hey, somebody might rent it again. Right. <laughs> it's only just taking up shelf space. Why not keep it? Uh, I, I ran across a pair of Paul Nashy films in this small little video store. And of the two titles, I decided one of them looked more interesting than the other. But of course, eventually I did end up watching them both. Uh, but the first one that I saw was one of the werewolf movies, which was uh, it was it was under the title the, the the Night of the Howling Beast, which is better known uh, in most circles these days as the Werewolf and the Yeti. Um, wonderful introduction to Paul Nashie's werewolf character because it plays very much like uh, something out of the pulp world of the 30s and 40s, like uh, it's it's part monster movie. It's part Republic serial and it's all completely crazy. And it's a, it's, it's a real joy. So my introduction to uh, Nashi was one of the werewolf movies. And then I immediately followed that up with the other VHS tape that that mom and pop store had, which was a very different kind of movie from him, but one that probably I thought might even be better a film called blue eyes of the broken doll. One of the yellows he did. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Fantastic movie. And uh, so those being my first two out of the gate, I got I got very lucky to stumble across those two and to just kind of fall in love immediately. And then it was me stumbling around in the dark looking for bootleg things. And then um, having just recently gotten to know that guy, Troy, the guy, the guy across the table from um, he had by that time acquired a couple of Nashi films on videotape and he loaned them to me. That's how I saw horror rises from the tomb. And, a few others, I think Count Dracula's Great Love, Probably, what you had yeah. on tape. Yeah, and so uh, basically there came a point somewhere in the mid-90s when I began to realize, wow, this is this is something to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And by then, uh, a very special uh, single issue of a, uh, a self-published monster movie magazine, well, ho European horror movie magazine, uh, came out uh, an issue of videos which uh, focused completely on Paul Nash's films. And as a matter of fact, uh, went through every one of his movies up to that point and had a lengthy multi-page interview with Paul Nash, which meant that at that point in time, I now had essentially 
a Bible, mm-hmm. a way yeah. to put all these things in line in my head, figure out what I needed to see, figure out what I hadn't seen yet, uh, and uh, off to the races, really. And that's never a completely easy thing to do, what you last thing you said about figuring out what you've seen, what you haven't seen, because yeah. as is common with, uh, you know, when you start to delve into Euro horror, one of the first things you figure out is that, boy, these films have a lot of different titles because <laughs> they get several, some of them get released several times and of course they get released in different countries. And so, yeah, one of the tricks with the, one of the first things you got to kind of really deal with when you're trying to be a completist and see all of Paul Nash's werewolf films is figuring out, you know, okay, these three or four titles are this one film and so on, you know, otherwise you just end up acquiring multiple bootlegs and realize you already own <laughs> this under different <laughs> yeah. titles. So, yeah. You know, it's really interesting since you mentioned uh, Psychotronic Magazine and all these different self-published publications. Uh, You know, for my younger listeners, you know, like Zoomers and Millennials, I I think people forget, you know, the interest in like Grindhouse and exploitation films. It doesn't start with like, oh, Tarantino wanted to make a movie with Rodriguez that tributes to Grindhouse movies. I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, the movies that Paul Nashi made, I think you would be surprised today to see them on things like Blu-ray, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just oh, yeah. because, yeah. you know, ultimately uh, it was really a handful of people, people like uh, Michael J. Weldon at Psychotronic um, Magazine that, you know, Psychotronic Film that really brought attention to these films and kept them alive uh, to this sort of underground fan base. So maybe you could speak a little bit about how uh, sort of a close-knit community is what kept uh, the cult of Nashi going. Well, I mean, it, you're, you're right to call it kind of a cult because um, it was here's, – here, here's the thing. Uh, if you're a, a fan of European exploitation films, it may take you a long while, especially if you're not really studying them – to realize that the Paul Nashi movies and a few other subs, you know, a few other movies that are, are, are different from the others in that they are made in Spain as opposed to France or Italy or Germany in general. So the, and it would take the, even longer in the pre-internet days to realize a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Precisely. Because you're not going to get helped out by the fact because whatever you're seeing at that point in time is, a, you know, is, is a, an English dub. And so the, these things can be from anywhere. And if you look, if you're scouring the credits trying to get some kind of clue, it's not going to help you because often mm-hmm. money would come from different people who you know were based in different countries in the first place. So, what uh, an Italian, French, German co-production? Well, what the hell does that? Mean? <laughs> where where do you end up on that one? So the, the the problem you get into is realizing at a certain point that oh well. The Spanish horror movies, not just the Paul Nashi movies, but the Spanish horror movies have a different tone and texture to compare to most of the same kind of films that were being made, especially in Italy. They're, Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, the biggest obvious thing to, to, to just scream from the rafters is that Paul Nashi was making monster movies, Okay. He primarily made thrillers and monster movies. Whereas if you paid attention to the films that were being made in Italy, which grew out of the, the thriller genre, the giallo genre, and would, you know, you'd have movies that kind of blurred the line between thriller and horror movie, they were pushing into the horror area 
and they weren't focused on monsters. You, you're not going to see an Italian movie where a werewolf pops up or a mummy or Count Dracula. That's not what they were doing. That's what Paul Nashi was doing. And so he was making monster films. Don't get me wrong. A subset of horror films, of course. But what he primarily was interested in were monsters, were those kinds of movies. Whereas people making other types of films, you know, you get slashers, you get all kinds of different things, you know, faceless killers, things like that. That kind of thing rarely interested him. Uh, if, he, if he were going to have a faceless killer, then it was going to have to be wrapped up in some kind of mystery some way or another, or it just didn't seem to appeal to him to a large degree. Now, other Spanish horror films at the same time that were being produced also kind of stand out from the pack. And of course, the best example of some other Spanish filmmaker working in the horror genre would be uh, Amando de Osorio, who's responsible for some amazing films, not least of which would be his uh, four Blind Dead films, starting with Tombs of the Blind Dead in 1971, or was it 72? My mind, my mind blurs. <laughs> <laughs> Man, anyway, and what you'll notice there is, once again, it's a monster movie. And of course, with Amando de Osorio, he created a brand new monster. He created his own screen monsters that he then was able to use in three sequels and so the um difference with spanish horror movies almost seemed to be not in every case of course because you're going to get all kinds of different things when you start producing a lot of movies and at a certain point in the early to mid 70s paul nashi himself was making five or six five or six movies a year right Depending, I mean, he wasn't necessarily writing them all. He would also, you know, be in other people's films as well. But when you're churning out that many movies, yeah, they're not all going to be monster movies. But generally, if you're watching a Paul Nashy movie made during that period of time, it's a monster movie. So that's really where you can feel the difference is that for whatever reason, for whatever, whatever was in the water or more likely, honestly, uh, because you're making films in a country where you're being kind of overwatched by a totalitarian government where uh, you might want to be careful about how you're putting things on screen. You might want to hide behind the, well, I don't know, the symbolism of a, of a cursed hairy guy who has to go out and kill people instead of some dark, some dark, hor horrible creature that might be lurking in the shadows in society and therefore indistinguishable from that person down the hallway who just might come at you with a knife. Maybe, the reason that there are so many monster movies that were made in Spain under a dictator was that they were already having to kind of hide their intentions when they were making these kind of movies in the first place. Who knows? So that actually leads me into something I wanted to talk about. Um, how much did Franco affect, not not just Paul Nashi, but other Spanish filmmakers? I ask that because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking right now of Jess Franco. And if you watch a lot of early uh, just Franco films. Uh, he he deals with like themes of mind control and and deception, and you you can tell he's influenced by uh, you know fears uh, concerning the, the dictatorship um, in in Spain. Uh, how much did Franco affect someone like Nashi and other Spanish filmmakers? How much of a role did that play in these filmmakers' lives and maybe even their films? I well, think it might. Yeah, I think it might depend on which period of Franco you're talking about. Right, right. Because there was a point where Franco began to uh, allow the borders to be open 
more than he had as far as for culture you know, yeah. to come in yeah. and uh, just if nothing else just to pump some money into the economy. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, if you look at the first Spanish produced horror film, which uh, I mean, apparently you can call that Jess Franco's uh, and we should be very careful here uh, because we're, we're, there was the dictator of Spain, General Franco. And then there is a filmmaker by the name of Jess Franco. Jess Franco yeah. And so, and the two I, probably never had lunch together. Uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think they did. I, I, I doubt Jess would have been pleased with the idea uh, of sitting down with the Generalissimo. But uh, the uh, uh, in 1962, Jess Franco made a an amazing black and white horror film called The Awful Doctor Orloff. And uh, you can if you see that movie, and I do highly recommend it. Uh, it is it's clearly influenced by uh, German expressionists, silent movies. Uh, it's it's got a, a wicked uh, sexual undercurrent that feels like you're watching something you really shouldn't be watching. It's a mad scientist movie. It's got a it's got a, a, a lumbering Igor type character who just feels dangerous every time he's on screen. Uh, it, 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 like I say, with, with Jess Franco, it will depend on what, what period of, of filmmaking you're talking about. But if you're talking about what uh, the, uh, the, are you talking about Jess Franco as an influence or are you talking about the, about the, the dictator as an influence? No, I'm, I'm talking about the dictator. Um, okay. Well, as like, like what, because now she, I think, grew up under, yeah. under Franco's reign, uh, yes, General Franco's reign. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that can't be overlooked. It's something that we never even, when we started, uh, when we started, Lord, 12 years ago, uh, doing these podcasts about his movies, um, that was really just kind of a, something in the background for us. And as we covered more and more of his films and got to know more and more about them, it became evident that that is a strong point undergirding the reasons for not just the censorship that they were dealing with, that they had to find creative ways around, but also the, the way in which they would approach stories in the first place, not just making monster movies as opposed to something else so that they kind of hide their, uh, you know, hide their intent or hide the, the kinds of, uh, shall we say, uh, commentary they might may or may not have been making about certain things within the society they live within. But the, uh, the, 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 the simple fact that um, growing up under that, growing up in a country mostly cut off from the rest of the world, um, you, you you kind of get a sense of not not always, but in a lot of cases, that is something that kind of creeps into a lot of the stories that Paul Nashie tell, tells. Um, the the kind of siege mentality that creeps into things. Where uh, and don't get me wrong, that's a that's kind of a standard for horror films. I mean, you know, the classic example being uh, Night of the Living Dead from '68, but where you end up with um, that kind of uh, mentality kind of creeping into even the way you're constructing the stories. So that uh, you you know you find ways to you know it's it's a classic horror movie thing, but of course it also stems straight from the fact that growing up under a dictator, growing up under growing up in a culture where you're just going to be you know walled off essentially from certain ex certain things that you may be interested in, regardless uh, that influences. It influences the kinds of stories and the way in which those stories are told. And that's something that we're still, I mean, we've only for the last few years really been exploring that because the best way to approach these movies the first time out is as pure entertainments. You know, you're, you're, I mean, these are, these are fun mm -hmm. 
fun monster movies. They're well, they're, 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 movies. they were movies that were made with uh, like commercial intent, obviously. Oh, sure. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, and, and, yeah. and that's what it is, you know, butts and seats. But at the same time, once you start seeing, uh, you know, different kind of thematic threads that, that kind of go across lots of different movies that are made years apart, you start to really see that, wow, either he's really only got the desire to hammer away at that one or two couple of nails, or that's something he didn't even think about. And it just is, it becomes something that creeps into the stories that he's telling. Well, and, and interestingly, because everything is a double-edged sword, of course, when it comes to arts and, and culture, it seems. And, and uh, you can talk about the kind of the carefulness that artists had to work with under uh, Franco's reign, but there was kind of a downside to when Franco's reign ended, yeah. especially for Spanish horror, because uh, with the end of the Franco reign, the obviously the permissiveness and the kind of iron fist was gone off of the off of the filmmaking community, and they began to really kind of just get into the sex. Then, because they could do more, then every suddenly the sex comedy or the sex film. Yep. really ramped up at the expense of the horror films because like, Hey, now we can do this and make money off these kinds of films and they're much easier and, and much easier much to exploit. Yes. Yeah. Than, than your standard horror film. And so the, so really the horror film kind of thrived more under Franco's reign yeah. than it did once he's gone. Uh, you know, which is, which is kind of a, a an odd, you know, uh, paradox there. Yeah. I was going to say, it's interesting too, that you mentioned what happens after Franco, um, dies with the, you know, uh, permissiveness in in mm. Spanish cinema because I think uh, if if I'm correct, there's a bunch of Nashi movies that there's the the U.S. versions and then there's the continental versions. So mm-hmm. so yeah. there's versions where the actors are clothed in certain th- scenes and then they're nude in other scenes in the continental version. <laughs> right, and some scenes, uh, some sex scenes are just so so completely obviously, uh, you know. Uh, contrived to the to the way that they they were filmed in a way that they could be easily removed because uh, often they happen without any pretext or 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 even after you know they can they just <laughs> yeah. what happens before them and what happens after them has nothing to do with that particular scene and so it's just you could almost see the beginning and end of the snip there where they could like clip the clip like, the film yeah. if, <laughs> if someone was in a particularly uh litigious area of whatever right. country they could snip right. that part out of the print and still be able to show the movie yeah mm-hmm. And so those, yeah, you're right. The uh, it, it, there was a long period of time there in the '70s where they would shoot e- any scene that involved nudity. They would shoot it with clothing and then without. So that the and the big reason for that is the clothed version, the one where there wasn't any nudity, is the one that would be shown there in Spain. Uh, and then the the one with nudity would go out to the rest of the world. And so what you end up with is if, if you're very lucky, and in a lot of cases we are very lucky, you, you, you get to be able to kind of, you know, watch the film the way uh, the, the way it was pretty much intended, which is with the nudity. And then you can, as a supplement, see the uh, <laughs> see the way they uh, carefully draped clothing in certain scenes so that no nudity was in evidence. That's, that, that, that can be fun, but there is nothing uh, there's nothing more frustrating than uh, knowing that there is a. Uh, there's a nude version of a, of a, of a film out there that has not survived through the decades. And you're, you're left with the, the tantalizing knowledge that these women were once naked in front of you. <laughs> well, and also uh, you get to a, a point in Paul Nash's filmography where you start to, uh, you know, where the, the, the English dubs uh, aren't available anymore because you can tell 
you know, you get to a point and you can tell it's around the time that the drive-in circuit, you know, and the American exploitation, the grindhouse circuit was was drying up as far as a, a, a viable place for his films to be uh, exhibited. And so there are no English dubs for those films that kind of start right about the late 70s, I guess, and, and on into the 80s there, uh, you know, whereas, of course, the films were recovered. You know, there's always an English dub for pretty much everything that was released in the early 70s, because they, at least they they did an English dub with the intent on the film being released here, whether it actually ended up being released or not. Yeah. Even if it just went to England. Yeah. Right. Right. So since you mentioned it earlier, um, what are some of the thematic uh, obsessions that Nashi uh, may have in his films for people that are unfamiliar? What are the sort of themes that he deals with? And even like, what's the potential commentaries that he's getting at? Well, one of the things that we come to again and again that are fascinating about Paul Nash's films is there's almost always a kind of old world versus new world conflict, uh, uh, almost a conservative, you know, libertarian, you know, or liberal kind of uh, con uh, conflicts as well uh, between characters and, and stories. It's why so many of his films involve, you know, what you'd call new uh, liberated people ending up in you know coming out to some remote backwards place and and uh uh and running into you know uh, uh, yeah running into a monster which very often kind of representative of the the old world or, or of the you know of, of uh, the the uh, right wing or old conservative regime i guess and and it's a uh, i think the thing that's fascinating about it is because nashi it's not always he doesn't always take a hard fast side either way and that's what you can delve in you can peel back the layers and see that I think the conflicts exist within him as a, as a, as a man, I think he yeah. had kind of old world ideals, but at the same time, being an artist, he also had a bohemian side to him too, you know, an artistic side to him, you know, that, that obviously was open-minded to that degree. But I think in other ways, I think he was also conservative, you know, was also conservative, yeah. kind of romantic, uh, I think. And I think he, those conflicts within himself, he plays out within the characters that, you know, and it's in his stories and his plot lines there. And, and it's it's kind of a, a constant fascination with us how these two worlds kind of conflict with each other within his films. So that's one that's one, I think, very strong theme that's very unique to Nashi. And I think another, which is uh, something that you can see, not just in the werewolf movies, is the uh, the kind of war within the human self, the, mm -hmm. that kind of. Uh, war between uh, the good and the bad that we all carry around within ourselves. And of course it, it manifests itself outwardly as a werewolf. You know, mm -hmm. you have this poor yeah. guy who's cursed with lycanthropy who uh, no matter what he does, cannot stop himself from being a killer and his, uh, his guilt and his uh, depression about being cursed in this way and having no way out of it uh, as the, as the, the character goes across several different movies and he uh, is desperate to attempt to find, he's desperately attempting to find some way some way to end this horrible existence. Of course, that is a, that's a, a theme that he borrowed straight from the old universal Wolfman character. And uh, it is one that he plays up very effectively across a number of films, not just the, the werewolf movies, but what that points out very clearly is as Troy just mentioned a second ago, the, the, the romantic end of things. And I don't just mean, you know, romantic as in, uh, uh, falling in love and finding your finding your soulmate or anything you, you mean like, like the romantic tradition uh, like, like yeah. Uh, yeah. lord byron right. percy blaise shelley yeah right right it's it's a worldview and it's a way of looking at the way uh stories are, are are kind of constructed that 
Nashi leaned into. Understand that this is not something where this is not a creator. This is not a guy writing these movies. He was unaware of these ideas. He was an educated man. And he's someone who read voraciously. He got an idea. He would tear into it and go through books and find ideas and find ways to, to fold certain ideas and concepts into his storylines. And, of course, he would be the first to admit that sometimes those things crept in whether he wanted them to or not, just because, you know, you absorb that much material over the course of your life. And it becomes something that becomes certainly second nature and just the way in which you think about some of these things. But the I think the romanticism that feeling of uh, looking at the world through uh, through the eyes of someone hoping for a better world, uh, hoping for a better way, and hoping for the you know the light at the end of a dark tunnel, that comes across in most of his movies. Uh, of course, these being horror movies, these being monster movies, often that uh, light at the end of the tunnel turns out to be a, a freight train. But yeah. <laughs> what can you say? Uh, the, these are the these are the kind of stories that they're telling. What can you do? It's interesting too because. I know that there's a number of Nashi films where beyond just playing characters like a a werewolf or, you know, a a vampire or anything like that. He also has, I think, a number of movies where he's almost playing himself in the sense that there's a lot of movies where he's playing a horror movie actor. Um, So maybe maybe you could Mm -hmm. talk about Mm -hmm. that a little bit. Well, I, I possibly the best example would, would be uh, from the late 80s, 1988, uh, a film that he made called Howl of the Devil. Which, I think it just uh, got re- released on Blu-ray a while back. Too. Yes, it did. And that, boy, there's a long story to tell there because that is a movie that um, was almost impossible to see and definitely impossible impossible to see in a decent way for, oh, roughly ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it never got a real release in theaters because of uh, some some one producer who uh, once the film was completed one of the producers of the film died in an accident died in a car accident and uh the rights got all tied up and so the only way to see how the devil for a very very long time was through vhs dupes of the one time it was shown on spanish television yeah and so uh once you see the movie now on blu-ray it is well just be, just thank your lucky stars you never had to see it the way we all watched right. it <laughs> repeatedly, which was uh, with, oh, man, it was like watching it through, you know, muddy gauze. Yeah, and, because uh, for, for people that don't know, like when there was, back in the days of VHS tape trading, you know, someone would have like an original copy, but really the copies everyone's getting, it's it degrades each time. So people are bootlegging it and bootlegging it. So you're getting a bootleg of a bootleg of a bootleg, a duplication of a duplication of a duplication. And each time the quality degrades. So it's yeah, it's these aren't crazy files. <laughs> yeah. These aren't digital yeah. files that are identical to each other. This is uh this is something very, very different. Mm-hmm. But you're right that uh uh this this is one film where he is playing a uh, you know, again playing multiple roles, but he's uh is you know playing a, a aging horror actor who's feeling very, very unappreciated, uh, you know, actually playing two brothers. And it's basically the, the horror actor who, who it, one, one brother is the horror actor who, who, and the other brother is the actor who's, who's considered himself worthy of more respect, you know, playing more respectable playing roles. Shakespearean role. And, and that probably also is, is Paul Nash's reaction to, the serious, you know, the side of him that didn't want to be appreciated as a serious artist, uh, it comes, you know, and the side of him that 
that did love playing monsters and did love horror movies and was kind of wanting both. Why can't I be both? Is that whole thing of, you know, why, why yeah. can't I? And, and, and then, and later, much later in his career, one of his last, in the, uh, one of his last great roles, uh, he again played an aging horror actor in a film called uh, Rojo Sangre, uh, which really, really needs to be seen. Uh, yeah, really, came out in 2004. Yeah, 2004 came out. <clears throat> really great role for him. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, a uh, and both of these films are really tinged, of course, with a lot of bitterness, uh, and Nash's films reflect, you'll, you know, if you follow them chronologically, you know, and you were to watch them, you would start to notice a real note of more kind of nastiness and, 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 and bitterness come yeah. into the films in the eighties where Nash is really starting to, to feel unappreciated, uh, and felt like a lot of the industry had turned its back on him. Uh, you know, and, 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 uh, and just, you know, just really kind of felt a drift. Uh, and, and, was and, he having difficulty getting funding? Because I know, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, he has a, a really yeah. interesting uh, sort of trajectory because I think in the eighties, yeah. he starts doing like Japanese Spanish co-productions, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, beast with the magic sword. So it sounds like he's really having to hustle just to get his films made. Well, luckily those Japanese co-productions in the eighties, those were a, a, a wonderful lifeline. He had for years there, a wonderful uh, production deal with, uh, with uh, some people in Japan through a friend of his who uh, was Japanese, but lived in Spain. And uh, through that, he, he made not just several, you know, thrillers and horror movies and one misbegotten comedy, but also yeah. a lot of, a lot of documentaries for Japanese television uh, so the early '80s, he was he was working a lot, but it was in this you know strange way. It's just that you, you follow the money and you follow the people who are willing to back your projects. But by the mid to late '80s, though, uh, that had dried up mainly because his friend, who was uh, the the Japanese fellow living in Spain, uh, he passed away as well, rather unexpectedly. And so the that that part of it, that part of his uh, creative life dried up uh, in, a, in an unfortunate way and it became very difficult for him there for a period. And then, you know, he had, a, he had his, his father passed away and then, you know, it just became one, one trial and tribulation after another. Had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, yeah. Then I eventually had a heart attack that he recovered from and then, Recovered uh, from and got back into weightlifting, which is just amazing. Yeah, got exactly. back as a competitor and, and champion and weightlifting after, after having a heart attack, which is incredible. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he was a dog with a bone. Once yeah. he wanted, to, once he wanted to do something, he convinced himself that he could, that he was going to do it in the story. But the uh, uh, the late eight, the, the stuff when you get into the late eighties, don't get me wrong, there there's there's some really good movies yeah, there, yeah. but the the tone over the course of the nineteen eighties changes. And I think a long time ago, I used to think at least that one of the reasons why the tone of his movies changed it became a little bit more harsher, or uh, you know, sharper edged or bitter. Uh, was that was the the tenor and tone of the 80s the, you know, the slasher genre was in ascendance but turns out that's really not it uh, it really was much it was really stemming from his personal life and the way he was starting to view the world around him and how angry he was becoming at the uh, the opportunities that were getting snatched away from him it kind of bled into those stories um, one thing to the side we should point out uh, I, I'm surprised we didn't mention it before uh, there are a number of things that you're going to notice uh, in Paul Nashy films, especially through the 60s and 70s, which is that uh, if Paul Nashy wrote the movie and there are lots of attractive actresses in the film, chances are good that the character that Paul Nashy plays is going to end up in bed with most of them. 
Uh, yeah, that seems to be a thing with Paul Nashy movies. The the women yeah. just are falling all over themselves for him. Even I think in his like one of his last films, um, and Pusa, you know. I mean, he's a good looking yes. guy even in old age, but he, he really loves being the uh the guy that all the women are swooning over. <laughs> well, I mean, from 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 what we understand, uh that was not, you know, stretching the truth very much at all. Apparently, uh, one of the one of the uh the things that Jacinto Molina, Paul Nash, he had was he had charm. He was one of those people who was very easy to get to know and one who could could turn it on, you know, could be a charming guy and, and just make it make you feel like you were lighting up the world. And we've had we've talked to female genre fans you know, who've listened yeah. to our show and who we've interviewed for the show and cover horror and really into horror movies and and they've said too let's say oh yeah he's got something he's got he's a, you know he's a you know good looking guy he's got you know definitely got a charisma and one of our great terms uh uh i don't know if you've heard us say it in our our show but uh, uh one of our our female listeners coined the term the nashy musk you know she said that yeah she said that yeah that, that, that indefinable that, thing the yeah. indefinable thing he's got called the nashy musk so that's uh that's that's become a term we use you know on, on our podcast a lot to describe that paul nashy thing there oh but one one other thing that we should bring up is that uh we should mention that often he would uh, he'll write himself more than one role within, mm -hmm. the, within the film so he'll end up playing often the easiest way to do that is of course he ends up playing like a, a uh, like a an ancestor of the main character or the descendant of a character that the movie starts off in. So he ends up playing a character in, you know, the late 1800s and also the, the modern day character set in the 1970s and strange. They look so much like there's such a family resemblance because mm -hmm. of course it's just him, yeah. but the, uh, the playing multiple characters things is, is always a blast because, you know, you can also, you, sometimes you can, you can hide it. Uh, you know, you can play a mummy because your face is mostly covered as a mummy and then you can play another character within the same movie. It's pretty cool. So, so if you could, you I, I had interrupted before um, when we got into the tangent about Nashy sort of uh, being the ladies' man. You were saying he got more bitter um, in in like the late eighties um, onward. So, what what was that bitterness about? Was he just was it having to deal with aging or? Oh, it was it was because the the opportunities to make films was was drying up uh, once the. Uh, once the, the the rains came off, once the censorship went away in Spain, there was no need to uh, to kind of hide behind monster movies anymore. And so what the Spanish public wanted, and therefore what was being produced primarily in Spain, were sex comedies, were just movies that really were, to a large degree, interchangeable. And they didn't travel well because they didn't need to travel well, because finally the Spanish public could go into a movie theater and see naked people. And that's all for about five or six years. They cared about it all. Mm -hmm. And so the opportunities to make movies for uh, people who made horror movies and wanted to make horror movies uh, started to dry up and it became harder and harder for him to get uh, scripts produced. So it became, uh, and, and also it was one of those things where he felt that he had spent years uh, working within the industry and all these people he thought were friends and were people who could uh, eventually, you know, who, who were in positions to be able to to help him out and to, to kind of shepherd certain projects in front of the cameras didn't do it or tried to do it and didn't, in his mind, try hard enough. And so as time crept on and he was having to uh, work harder and harder to get things made, he became more and more angry at the fact that people that he felt he had helped along the way weren't 
returning the favor as he got older. So I, I'm really interested in talking a little bit about the the later era Nashi films. Um, this they've always fascinated me because uh, he's in a lot of films later on that he didn't even direct or write. Uh, so like movies like School Killer, um, and uh, he was in a Brian Usna film, I believe, Rottweiler. Uh, mm-hmm. He even yep, comes yeah. to America and I think does a movie with Fred Olin Ray, which yeah. is a, a sort of, I guess, almost unofficial Waldemar Daninsky movie called Tomb of the Werewolf. So uh, could you talk a little bit about his later years? Yeah, um, well, of course, it's, you know, of course, yeah, we, we've covered all those films that you just mentioned on our show and uh, found some merit in in some of them. You know, I mean, he definitely had the the films worth seeing kind of peppered here and there. Uh, he made a kind of a late period of uh, Baltimore Daninsky film too uh, called Lacanthropos, uh, or Lacanthropo, I guess is the right way to say in that. In the nine, yeah, 1996. I, th- I think he even did like a Death Wish sort of knockoff called oh, yeah. like Night of sure the Executioner. Did. Yeah. Yes, he did. That was yeah. the early 90s. So yeah, pretty darn good film. Yeah, and that is a and that was in direct uh, response to uh, actually having somebody, a, a person that he and his wife knew, a friend of theirs, was raped and, and killed so that even though obviously when he did when in reaction to that incident, you know, he did make a film that, yes, was kind of made to to uh, tap into the market of the Death Wish films. In, this, in his case, it was actually fueled by a real life tragedy that he, you know, in his in his in his life. But, uh, as, as you know, the, the those films are so across the board when you get into those last couple of decades, because there's you know, there's the films that he, he literally like did a cameo in. And sometimes the cameos were. A lot of times they were, I'm sure he was asked to do the cameos because younger filmmakers were growing up loving his films and, and knowing who he was and kind of wanted him, you know, just were excited to have him in their films. And some of those led to, you know, some some interesting roles. But again, a lot of times the films themselves were not so good. And, and sometimes they were almost uh, walk-ons. And then sometimes they're pretty bad. I mean, uh, you know, your, your enthusiasm for having Paul Nash in your film doesn't necessarily translate to, you know, you making a good <laughs> film. So those are, uh, but yeah, there's there's definitely interesting films in that era, and and the the nice thing is that I mean Paul Nashi always appreciated, of course, the work, and especially when it was somebody who was bringing him into the film because they did admire him and, and wanted to give him uh, some work. But you know, the nice thing about as you get into sort of the last decade of his life is there's sort of a turnaround in 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 what in him being able to see that he was being appreciated and that they started, he started getting some, uh, you know, some, some awards late in his life. Uh, I think there was a street named after him and things like that, you know, that, that, uh, and and he got to do some convention appearances here in the States where people were lined up and, and just, you know, uh, telling how much they loved his films and loved him. And so, so the good thing about Nashi's story is that he does get to, I think after he wrote his autobiography, uh, you know, he, I almost wish he could have done one last revision. He might have changed some of his final words in it. It might have come off as as, as a little more positive. It's a I great, it's a great book. I just but, wish he'd written a whole second oh, auto- okay. autobiography. Yeah. He's such a good writer. Yeah, we might as well say right here that we have for your listeners that we highly recommend uh, a book called uh, Memoirs of a Wolfman, yeah. which was written by Paul Nashi, his autobiography. He's really just a terrific writer. It makes you wish he had just written more books uh, because it's just great reading. Uh, but at the time he wrote it, you know, he's he's still kind of in that mode of, of um, you know, you know, of, 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 of feeling that he's, you know, there's some anger there still, you know, and, and towards the industry. And I, I think it was just after the book was published. 
that things started to take a little turn for the more positive where he began to kind of get the adulations he had, he had missed and, and, and realizing that he was actually meant that he didn't mean a lot to a lot of, of people. I was going to say too, I think uh, right after he passed away, uh, one of his posthumous roles is in a movie that's actually named after his Wadimir Daninsky character. Um, it's more of like a Lovecraftian tale, but I think it's called um, The Valdemir Legacy. Yeah, there were two of them. There was uh, yeah, two different yeah. films. And they're pretty um, well-regarded films. And it's kind of cool yeah. that they're named after him. Yeah. They're good. And his role, even though it's not a huge role in it, it's a good role, especially in the first one. I think the second one, he maybe just has a really small part. Yeah, yeah. Think, yeah. He's, he's, he's got a, he's got a pretty, pretty nice little part in the first one. But yeah, mm-hmm. the second one, less so. Yeah, but those are, those are actually good films. They are worth seeing. So... Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the, the movie Frankenstein. Why did that movie impact him so much? Uh, I think there's even a documentary that's uh, named that, about Nashi that's named after his uh, interest in Frankenstein. I think it's called The Man Who Saw Frankenstein Cry. Oh, yes. well, that comes from, uh, I mentioned earlier that in, uh, in the, begin- in the uh, early and mid-60s, Jacinto uh, Molina was trying to work his way into the film industry. And one of the ways he was doing that is he was, doing bit roles in American productions that were being shot in Spain. And uh, a lot of people do this at the time. And uh, one of those, one of those productions was an episode of the TV series. I spy. Uh, if you don't know what that was, it was uh, pretty much what, <laughs> what the title tells you. So Robert Culp and Bill Cosby back in the, back in the sixties, it was a hit television show and they came and shot uh, an episode of the program there in Spain, and the guest star in the episode was Boris Karloff. And so, uh, this, of course, being the golden opportunity, of course, Asento Molina took the opportunity to to watch Boris Karloff anytime that he could uh, there on the set. And one of the in that what the title of that documentary that's about Paul Nash's life refers to is he he told the story of uh, watching. Boris Karloff, who by that time in his life, uh, had, you know, was was in kind of constant pain. Uh, he had he had uh, back problems. He had uh, his his legs were very bad, and uh, he he uh, he was in he was in a lot of physical pain anytime he had to move. Uh, not that you could really tell it if you watch him on screen during that period of time, because of course Boris was a professional. But behind the scenes, he saw. Boris Karloff in a lot of pain and kind of weeping from those from that pain um, behind the scenes on that television show. And um, of course, loving those old Universal horror films and being so influenced by Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, that you know that plays heavily into seeing someone at the end of their career versus seeing them at the beginning of their career and realizing probably as he started his own career that, you know, these things change as you get, you know, as you get older, your opportunities alter and shift. And uh, I think it's the perfect metaphor for a young man who admires an older person whose, whose career they, they end up mimicking in some odd ways. So just a few more things I want to touch upon here Uh, in, in regards to uh, Nashi's legacy and also just, um, uh, his influence. How well known is he in Spain? Because I've I've heard that he's kind of considered a legend there, uh, but I've also heard people say that that's like um, that's sometimes overstated. Uh, so I like how respected is he in his native um, Spain? Uh, 
that's a good question. That's a, um, I don't know that I could, I could give you a, a, a real concrete, you know, answer there. I, I think that, um, I think especially with more of the films coming out on video and DVD and, and Blu-ray now in Spain as well, you know, as they, as more they come out, I think that, I, I think that audience is only growing all the time. And especially yeah. as, as happens in this country too, as I mentioned earlier, you, and you start to get, people who come of age where they're starting to make their own art and they're starting to make their own films. And what you got now in Spain is a lot of horror directors, you know, the Spanish horror cinema has kind of taken off again in the last, you know, couple of decades. There's been a lot of really interesting films, a lot yeah. of really interesting filmmakers. And they were, of course, grew up watching Paul Nashie films and being aware of who he, who he, who he was, you know? And, and, uh, and so I think as they come along, they're they're name checking him all the time, you know, talking about him in interviews, you know, how much of an influence he was. And so other people see that, you know, and uh, and so it's it's I think I think probably now there was probably a period probably during the maybe the 90s, maybe early 2000s when you might have almost could have said he was was a kind of forgotten person in his own country. But I would bet that you would find a lot more people over there now who would know who he is be just, just because of that gener that new generation of, of artists and filmmakers, you know, who were influenced by him. Yeah. And it is kind of one of those situations where most with, with, a, with a lot of artists whose career goes through different, you know, different patches of success and, and, and lack of success. Um, you don't know what you got until it's gone. Mm -hmm. And so once he passed away uh, in uh, 2009, late 2009, you get you you slowly over the next few years it becomes one of those things where he's talked about more and more it, it, even in his native country as someone who they lost you know the someone who uh made made a major mark uh much more outside of his home country than inside it mm -hmm. and there becomes a, a certain movement uh amongst people who may or may not be have been big fans of him you know in their youth Regardless, they see a point of pride about this man's success and how he is so well known that in a certain weird way, uh, he is uh, he, he's kind of a cinema ambassador to the, the entire world straight from their home country. And so it's one of those, uh, you know, one of, you know what, what was the, what, what's the line? One of the one of the best career moves you can make is to die <laughs> uh, to, to a degree that's. Uh, that's what it seems like over the past decade plus of watching uh, watching Spain start to take note of their uh, their now passed away horror icon. Yeah, pretty much every modern, pretty much every major horror magazine that we have now, you know, with the through morgue scream. I mean, they've all done articles on on Nashi and extensively yeah. covered his films. Well, I, I was going to say there's some big name directors that I think have championed. Uh, Nashi's films. I think uh, Joe Dante and jo Joe La John Landis mm -hmm. uh, are oh, big yeah, fans. Yeah. yeah, get to Guillermo del Toro to yeah. start talking about Paul Nashi, and he's going to take your ear right off. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah. So then, um, it, it, it's interesting for my listeners if they were just getting into Nashi. Uh, what films would you recommend to start out? How do you enter the world of uh, Paul Nashi? Well, um, you want me to start with that, Rod? <laughs> I th yeah, I think there, there's probably four or five movies that are good starting points. Yeah, um, just for your, you know, uh, like you're asking me to recommend to your listeners who probably have a wide, wide background in, in films and some of them may be into Euro horror and some of them aren't. I'd say 
if you have a grounding already a little bit in, in European horror films, if you've seen some of the Dario Argento or Lucio Fulci or Mario Bava films, and you know, and so you've got a little bit of a, a feel for the oddness and the the kind of otherworldly strangeness of Euro horror, you could probably jump right in with Horror Rises from the Tomb and uh, Hunchback of the Morgue. Um, I would uh, is a great one. Uh, of course, the werewolf films of, of Werewolf versus the Vampire Women, which is just about to come out on a Blu-ray from Vinegar Syndrome, and it's going to have, by the way, that documentary that you mentioned is going to be included as an extra, which is huge, huge news. Yeah. Um, you know, so you could probably go ahead and check out one of those. Uh, maybe House of Psychotic Women would be, uh, which that's that's also known as Blue Eyes yes. and Broken Ball. Yeah. But I would, for me, I would say if if for the listeners who are kind of like European, okay, Euro horror film, you know, what is that? I've never really delved into that, but are just open-minded to cinema in general. I would probably tend to recommend something more like a film that's been released under the title of The Devil Incarnate. Uh, it's also known as The Traveler, but uh, or one called The Frenchman's Garden, because those films are dealing with horrific subject matter, but they're not they're not like monster movies, you know, they're they're not like really uh, super into the kind of fairy tale uh, monster movie sort of, of tropes. There, they're 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 more like um, you know. Well, in, in Devil Incarnate, he's literally playing Satan come to Earth to just wander among humanity. Uh, they're almost like Paul Nash's art films, you know. In The Frenchman's Garden, he's playing a real life. He's, it's based on the story of a, of a real life Spanish murderer. Um, so maybe I would drop people in that way into those films because they're probably a little more like. Uh, the foreign films that they may have already watched that aren't strictly Euro horror films. Maybe yeah, we, we've joked for years that uh, The Frenchman's Garden and uh, El Caminante or The Devil Incarnate, which you know, you, th those those two films are movies that uh, would, would sit properly amongst the Criterion Collection. They're exceptionally good films mm -hmm. uh, that just have, hor just have horror aspects to them, right. but they're just fantastic movies. And I I think that, uh, you know, you can show those in an art house cinema and people would just be wowed by them. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, these are being made in the late 70s by a guy who, you know, made, made his mark as a werewolf. So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, I would I would second uh, a good starting point. If you, if you, if you want to go into the monster movies or the horror movies specifically, you cannot do better than the madness that is horror rises from the tomb. It is uh, the quintessential uh, everything and the kitchen sink kind yeah. of horror screenplay uh, that uh, Nashi, uh, you know, wrote in a fever uh, 24 hour, you know, <laughs> span span of time because he had to have a script ready by the next day yeah. so that they could go into production. Uh, it, horror Rise from the Tomb is completely insane. It is a great jumping off point to give you a sense of just how crazed the movies can be and just also how effective they can be. And also an example of something we really haven't mentioned on the show so far, but uh, you probably heard us mention it on our podcast before reference it. We call it the Nashi Stew, which is yeah. Paul Nashi. Uh, you mentioned, you know, we were talking earlier about kind of common themes. Uh, one common theme in Paul Nashi's film is a whole lot of themes. You know, he, uh, <laughs> he uh, tends to uh, throw a lot of ingredients in as he's constructing a story, which makes the story so much fun. A lot of side trips and subplots. Sometimes then he suddenly has to tie them all up in five minutes because he's reached the, uh, you know, we've reached the uh, the 80 minute running time in order to make it palatable for district for exhibitors in the oh, yeah that so, and he suddenly realizes he's got a whole lot of characters he's got to kill off yeah exactly so sometimes he can write it sometimes he can overload the uh, ingredients but it's so much fun watching because you rarely ever get just a straight linear 
story that you can kind of sum up in one sentence because there's, oh yeah, there's this too. And there's this character. Where did this character come from? And uh -huh. those kind of things. So the Nashi stew is always a uh, fun to savor. But yeah, I would also point to uh, werewolf versus the vampire women, which uh, will become mm -hmm. much, here in a couple of months will become much easier to yes. see since it will be issued on Blu-ray. And also just as a wild card, uh, I would throw in uh, one of his Japanese co-productions, the beast of the magic sword, which is a, Alan Martinsky werewolf film that takes place in the uh, 16th century uh, in Spain and mm -hmm. in Japan. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially werewolf versus samurai. So what more do you need to know? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, that, that's, that's, that's the joy. If you want a straight thriller, go with uh, blue eyes, and the broken doll. Um, but yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different shades of black within the, the horror movies of Paul Nash. You know, it's interesting too, in, in regards to um, Nash, where do you think he may have been ahead of his time uh, as a filmmaker and as an actor? Because to me, it's really interesting. Uh, he reminds me in some ways of a, a Brazilian horror filmmaker by the name of um, Jose Mojica Mirens, who's oh, yeah. known for yeah. uh, his Coffin Joe movies. And what I find interesting about Nashi and um marins is that really like they created their own cinematic universes before anyone was ever thinking about things like the marvel cinematic universe uh, or you know franchise sequels i mean both of these guys ended up you know basically creating a character and making multiple sequels you know we're on the 13th halloween movie now with michael myers but you know paul nashi was doing what he did like 12 uh, different Waldemir Daninsky films in his lifetime, way before you had all these sequels coming out uh, in the U.S. of our favorite horror franchises here stateside. Well, where he was ahead of his, ahead of his time, you know, is is a way that I think kind of lurks underneath the surface of the kinds of stories that he told, which was, uh, and I don't think that this was necessarily something that he thought of consciously at the time, which was just the way he constructed his stories by regardless of how crazy they may be on the surface, how out of control certain elements of it may be, or how strangely paced certain films of his may or may not end up being. Uh, what undergirds his stories is a, a, a strict adherence to the realities of showing the, uh, the emotional, the, the emotional story of the main character. Not necessarily secondary characters, also, although sometimes that factors in as well. But one of the ways in which I think he was ahead of his time was, yeah, we're going to have the thrills. We're going to have the, you know, we're going to have, we're going to have blood. We're going to have excitement. But, but what's driving it? In the same way that the the werewolf movies are driven by that 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 sad sa that sad sack bastard at the center of it who's cursed and who has to deal with the fact that he has no control over what happens to him. These movies are very much driven by the the uh, the emotional content within the characters. In other words, these are not ciphers. These are not you know random faceless victims falling under the knife of a serial killer. These are people whose choices and the reasons they make those choices are what drive the story forward. And I think that uh, that's not something that uh, you know that's not something that often drives movies, especially once you start moving into uh, the, the lower budget stuff. And, you know, he never had humongous budgets to work with, except in, well, some of those Japanese productions, he mm -hmm. was able to wrangle mm -hmm. pretty decent, a pretty decent budget on those things. But there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of thought that undergirds his stories. 
even the 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 weirder ones, uh, even the ones that seem like they're about to fly out of control at any moment mm-hmm. in time. Uh, there, there's a lot of thought there that it, that it is the uh, it's the characters who are driving things. It is the the events uh, that they have to react to. Once you once you get to a certain point in the story, you can you can see those wheels turning behind the characters' eyes and realize what's go- what's going on is something that you can feel affecting them. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're as successful as they are. So I think that he is one of the few horror filmmakers that come out of the, the 70s who never really lost sight of the idea that you've got to make those characters uh, people that uh, even if you don't necessarily uh, like them, you understand what's going on with them. Uh, and I think that's one way he was, he was kind of ahead of his time. In a lot of ways, he was retro. I mean, he's making monster movies mm-hmm. that are like universal horror movies in the 70s and 80s. And by the 80s, trust me, nobody wanted to see those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the audience for, no matter how brilliant Beast of the Magic Sword is, the audience for that was extraordinarily limited. I mean, you just you did not get that kind of movie being made for good reason. And uh, there's that retro, that looking backwards thing. But once again, I think if you're talking about something that gives you a, a pinpoint to how he was ahead of his time, it's not that he was looking forward and kind of being, you know, being someone who's, who, who was influencing uh, the way the horror genre would go necessarily at all. But he, by being so retro, by being so influenced by those older films, the one, you know, the ones that he grew up watching that, that made him want to be someone who made those kinds of stories uh, I think he one of the things he took from it was what makes so many of those movies work, which is you've got to have uh, decent, interesting, identifiable characters within the stories that cannot be ciphers. Yeah, I was going to say, too, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because, uh, you know, I, I, I was saying earlier, you know, it's crazy to me, like that he made 12 uh, Waldemar Daninsky movies, but uh, you know, in a way that does harken back to the Universal Monster movies because, you know, there's so many, you know, oh, Lon Chaney is a Wolfman. There's multiple movies of that. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess he was even with doing I mean, I, I'm not sure I would call the Waldemar Daninsky movies like sequels in the sense of you have to see them all in order. But no, you don't. In, no. <laughs> in a way, in a way, he, he was harkening back to what those Universal Monster movies were doing. Um, and I think we've seen a return to that in some ways in modern cinema where we're getting a lot of sequels and a lot of um, just things have become brands now. Right. Um, yeah, and I think sure. there's the Waldemir Daninsky brand with Paul Nashi. Well, there's certainly uh, getting back to what we talked about, how, the you know, he's better known now because of the way that that artists are reflecting his influence on them is in addition to filmmakers i mean there's 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 been quite a few nashy uh comic books that have come out you know comic book adaptations of his films and that sort of thing uh have, have come out in the last last few years oh and not well it's not just that it's that i mean let, let, let's let's put it this way i mean okay. music too i'm sorry but yeah there's bands that have done songs that reference waldemar Dinsky or, or or paul nashy's films well the uh we we should as a sideline we should note that when we started doing the the Nashi cast in uh, tw- in uh, 2010, um, there were exactly zero Blu-rays of all Nashi films right, right, in yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were we were dealing with a few DVDs and uh, most of the way we mostly the way we were able to see a lot of the movies as we covered them was to find a source from a different com- from a different country 
uh, and uh, you know, while our way through anything that would give us uh, an English language option. And somewhere along the way, it's like somebody started listening. And, yeah. and, and now more than 20 of his films are available on Blu-ray in the United States. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. We are living in wondrous times. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to circle back kind of... <coughs> So to circle back kind of to the the beginning of what we we first started when Rod was kind of giving the overview of Nashi, uh, he mentioned um, that you know the, what what really makes Nashi unique among the horror stars, you know, because he is often considered you know when people who are fans of his, you know, will put him in with the category of the Karloffs, the Lugosi's, and of course you mentioned it's very often he's called the Spanish Lon Chaney yep. Jr., but really. Uh, you know, the thing, the big difference with that, you mentioned those 12, you know, those, all those Baldur and Daninsky stories is they were driven by Paul Nash's creativity, by his mind. He's the one creating those stories. I was going to say, would you yeah. call him an auteur? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if, if you, you know, as, 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 as much as you, as much as I understand that term, as much as you want to believe in that term, I mean, I think when it comes to most of his films, uh, you know, uh, and I think he wanted to be. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And he certainly was happy to, I mean, he, he, that was one thing about Nash. He was, uh, even though he worked with some terrific directors and a lot of them he really respected, uh, he'll often mention in his books, they didn't feel like they always had the kind of feel for horror that he, they didn't do things quite the way he would have if he had been a director, you know, this is the years before he finally was able to step behind the camera yeah, and now. do and, and, and do it himself. But, but uh, it sounds like he took his films very seriously too. Like uh, yeah. I know there's like entire films that he disowns. I know he, I think <laughs> fury of the Wolfman. Uh, it's one that he notoriously hates, which it's funny because that was the first Nashi movie I ever saw. Well, it was he, he would get people. very mad about certain movies. Yeah. That yeah, film was, yeah, the first one by a lot of people because it was so easy. That was one of the public domain ones, or once it turned up on a lot of DVD releases. So it was one of the easiest to get your hands on. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, there are many reasons that he does not, he was not pleased with Fury of the Wolfman for a lot of reasons. The, not the least of which is that the, the, he he despised the director who yeah. was was a drunk. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> if if you watch the movie, you'll you'll notice the tone is all over the place, and uh, there there are scenes cut into Fury of the Wolfman that are actually taken directly from the 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 previous werewolf film, which means that they don't match at all. They don't they don't look right. They're, there's mm. it's it's completely bizarre and uh it's fear of the wolf man's a mess I, I mean don't get me wrong there's a there's a blu-ray of it that you can get your hands on now that has a a there were two di- slightly different versions of the film that that were out there in the world and one of them is better than the other there luckily that blu-ray has both of them mm-hmm. and you know it's like i'm never going to think of fury of the wolf man as uh as a shining example of, of, of the <laughs> no. valdemar series <laughs> But uh, it, it is nice to finally have it in a, a viewable in a form that that casts the best light upon it. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, he did. He disowned that one and he really was unhappy with it. And once you see it, compa- especially compared to the movies, the movie before and after it, you're just like, oh, yeah, I can see. I can see this is a disjointed mess. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the uh, appeal of his films overall? Like what what do you think led to the cult? of uh paul nashi why does he have such cult following what are the specific aspects of his films uh that draw uh, a certain audience in i mean i mean in the sense of um uh 
you know, I think people are really drawn to say uh, David Lynch movies because they just find the the sort of dreamlike elements to be very interesting. Um, or with Cronenberg, maybe people are interested in the way he deals with the body and horror. What is it about uh, Paul Nash's films uh, that for you and for others uh, really draws people in? Well, I think that most people do come to the films via the werewolf films, via the Waldemar Janinsky films. I don't know if that's as true today because of so many, because of the films available on Blu-ray, but I think as far as what was available on TV and, and what, you know, it, it, we mentioned earlier werewolf versus vampire women, which is also known as werewolf shadow is another title for it. That really is kind of the keystone film, you know, uh, in, in, in really not just Paul Nash's work, but in Spanish horror in general, it was, it was a huge success over here in the drive-in circuit. You know, it, World, well, worldwide, yeah, worldwide. Yeah. Not just the United States. It's kind of the one that really, even though it wasn't his first werewolf film, it's the one that really not only kicked his career into high gear for, for those mid seventies there. Uh, but also, um, you know, the whole Spanish horror genre really just took a big leap up in production of films because of the success of that film. So I think that people coming to his films who want to see, a, you know, they come into it want to see, they like werewolf, they like monster movies, they like horror movies, they may have a, an affection for the classic horror movies, and they come to his films, and okay, they're seeing so many of these classic horror elements, you know, with the, the tortured hero who also has, you know, has the curse of the werewolf, you know, they see that certain romanticism and that certain fairy tale aspect, which I think is also another aspect of Spanish cinema that isn't as prevalent in, say, Germanic and Italian cinema that I think also kind of identifies the Spanish horror film is that they have, I think, more of a feel of, of like, like old European horror of us fairy tales. To yeah, a yeah. Lot of them. They're, they're, they're essentially the, the next step into, uh, you know, more R rated territory that the hammer films will mm -hmm. take. It's, it's their, their colorful, colorful, mm -hmm. violent, and uh, pushing the edges of the envelope a little bit further than the Hammer movies. There's a, there's a feeling if you if you look at it from you know across the you know across from the 50s through the through the 70s, they feel in a lot of ways like the next step if you're if you're looking at what was being done for Hammer Studios. And I think another thing that makes that that kind of explains the cult that grows up around uh, the Paul Nashy films, all of them. Is uh, is pretty simple in that they can often look like some of the stuff that was being made by other European filmmakers. You know, he he made a number of thrillers that you know can stand up right next to a number of the giallos that were being turned out all the way through the seventies because they are the same kind of movie. But for the most part, especially those monster movies, these are similar but incredibly different. They have a different feel. Yeah. They are a clear subset of a different type of horror movie, and they're identifiable in that that tone comes across regardless. It's not just you see Paul Nash on screen and you know, oh, okay, well, that's what this is. No, they're, they're, they're perceptively different from the movies that were being produced at the time by, by in other countries in Europe. And so you can enjoy them side by side, but they always, they, the, the Nashi films always feel different. And as something that's becomes apparent as you watch them more and more, as you realize just how different the Nashi werewolf films are from one another, you know, yeah. that they really more than you think, you know, I think when people just do kind of a first cursory overview of them, they kind of get this feeling of here's the standard Valdemar Daninsky story or plot line. 
And then, but then once you start watching them, as we did with our show, you start getting to them and you start really analyzing, you start realizing just how different they yeah. really are within that series there, within that saga, you know, and, and you kind of get in that way with Paul Nash's films as you begin to realize just how many different elements and while, while there are certain things that define them across the board, you know, it's, it's that, uh, you know, a lot of times it comes down to just Paul Nash's screen presence himself, you know, that's kind of, the, kind of the grounding, the center piece, the grounding thing in these films. But then you realize, man, across the board, there are really a lot of different takes on this character. And Nash himself said he never worried about continuity in that character. The character was whatever he needed him to represent for that particular film. Yeah. That's why he could be uh, an action hero mm -hmm. as well as a, we a cursed werewolf mm -hmm. in something like the werewolf versus the Yeti mm -hmm. and then be this, this beat down, uh, beat down pathetic man who's desperate to find some way out of his predicament in werewolf versus, you know, the were werewolf, uh, Dr. Jekyll and the werewolf. Yeah. And then uh, you get to like, as far as like, get to like a tropo and he's a family, he's essentially a family, he's just a yeah. family man who has his similar. Who's re yeah. Who's reached middle age before, yeah. before he hits that curse of the, that yeah. family curse of lycanthropy. And it becomes a, a very different kind of story at that point. Yeah. Mm. You, you have to love how uh, it was Nashy that was the one that was like, why don't we make a, a Dr. Jekyll versus uh, the werewolf movie or a Dr. <laughs> yeah. Jekyll versus uh, the, the Yeti movie? I mean, mm -hmm. and that's back in the 70s. I think people, yeah. would, I, really? I, I I could see people wanting to make those movies today, but it was kind of like bold to do that back in and then in a way it's it's kind of crazy. And well, I mean, we, yeah. we may be burying the lead to a certain degree to not talk about the fact that uh Santo Molina was a creative guy. Yeah, <laughs> he was yeah, someone yeah. who loved the genre. And, you know, th those weird combinations, those are things that are just springing out of his creativity. That's just the uh, someone, you know, who's who can get back in touch with that eight year old's part of himself and go, you know, it's like him having the action figures like the werewolf meets Mr. Hyde. Oh, what if <laughs> what if the werewolf became Mr. Hyde? Oh, yeah, oh yeah, you know, and then yeah. it, you know, it's like. To, you know, some kids sitting on the floor having a, a sugar rush, banging two mm -hmm. superhero characters, you know, two, act, two action figures together. It's the same kind of thought process that then he turns it into an actual yeah, film. Because then, yeah, you got the you got the kid part of him doing that, you know, getting that initial setup. But then you got the artist, the really creative part, the fertile mind coming in and like thinking like, how, how do I do this? And do it in a way, <laughs> yeah, that's totally unlike what you expect. And uh, I mean, listen, if you want to just take one film, you know, for your listeners out there, if you just want to see how fertile Paul Nashie's creativity was, uh, go see Hunchback of the Morgue. Because oh, it's a film that truly almost every five minutes changes into some what you didn't, you know, changes what you thought the film was going to be, you know, from where you yeah. go into it. I mean, it literally morphs every few minutes into, oh, it's this. OK, it's not doing what I thought. Now it's doing this. It, to the point it eventually becomes like, you know, it folds in like H.P. Lovecraft and things like that into the storyline. Yeah, it's, it's a movie that starts out about, it starts out with the main character, the hunchback character, who would be the side character in a mad scientist story. Yeah. And the, the movie has a mad scientist who doesn't enter the story until you're almost a third of the way into the film. Yeah. Because the focus is on the side character, the the hunchback. And then it all starts focusing on the mad scientist with the hunchback being this this person who's being sent out by the mad scientist to get him, you know, well, more and more dead bodies so that he can conduct this bizarre experiment that he's involved in. And it's just it's one of those things where it's like, you know, nobody would normally nobody would construct the story this way. And yet you're watching it and realizing at a certain point. Holy crap! How are we? You know, how are we at this point in the story? How are we here? How did yeah. this happen? 
Yeah, what what's really interesting for me um, is that, and this sort of ties into what you're saying, you know, it, it's often been said that, uh, you know, a filmmaker like Kubrick is really interesting because Kubrick tackled every genre in his lifetime. He did a horror movie, he did a drama, but with Nashi, Nashi tackled almost every subgenre of horror film imaginable. You know, he does yeah. a mummy movie. Then he mm. does, he did an exorcism movie that he, I think he claimed that he actually wrote it before the exorcist was ever made. Um, also, he even tackled uh, the Witchfinder general type stuff with uh, mm -hmm. a movie that I'm very fond of inquisition. Yeah, so yeah. I think he even did, uh, I think it's a lost film, but I think he even did a wax museum horror movie. Uh, yeah. So he tackled literally every subgenre of horror imaginable in his long career. Yeah. Yeah. And actually outside of the horror, horror genre, he made, uh, he made, straight dramas he made historical uh historical uh epics he made all kinds of different films and uh the, the one genre and we've joked about this for years mm -hmm. the one genre he never got to tackle is one that he really wanted to but just never got the opportunity is he never got the chance to make a western yeah 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 i would love to have seen a paul nashi western but that never happened uh before we close out i'm just curious uh because i always like to ask about uh, assuming there are any, are there any uh, lost films of Paul Nashke or uh, films that never materialized, you know, um, that we only know a little bit about or that just never came to be? Well, I do know that he had a sequel planned to Count Dracula's Great Love, which uh, would have been great to see because uh, as visually wonderful as Count Dracula's Great Love is, I mean, it could, I, I could never get tired of watching the film. It's It's got incredible atmosphere and, and visuals, you know, uh, a lot of the plot line is even for a Nashi film is pretty muddled and pretty you know it's a just, mess. Yeah. it is a mess. And uh, um, there are reasons for that yeah. that don't have anything to do with the script. Right, but, right. Yeah. There are a lot of production problems in there, but there's also things that he was setting up for a sequel he had planned. Uh, and so those elements really stand out as strange in the film. If you don't realize that there was going to be a there was a plan for there to be a second one there. And uh, so yeah, so that's one that I would have loved to have seen him get to make. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago uh, one of the one of the films that uh, is kind of lost, well, completely lost, uh, which is one he made uh, right uh, right there uh, in the early '90s, uh, late '80s, early '90s, which is the uh, the I think it was called Mystery in the Wax mm -hmm. Museum. Yeah, uh, it was finished. It was completed. Uh, there, uh, I think that there may have been one or one or more elements that needed to be. Uh, needed to be uh, done to the the finished film, and then it's just gone. Mm -hmm. uh, the, not even Nashi's family have any information about a uh, print of it, any way to have ever seen it. Um, uh, I think his I think his son Sergio said at one point that he says like the thing just didn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and Sergio was in the movie actually yeah, as yeah. a young lad. He's one of the actors who was in the movie and remembers it remembers it fondly, but. Yeah, yeah, it's just one that's gone. I'd love to see that one. You know, believe me, if Howl of the Devil can somehow turn up and be gorgeous on Blu-ray, maybe one day somebody, somebody is going to find a, a, a print of that uh, Wax Museum movie made from roughly the same period of time, and we'll get to check it out. That, for me, is the that's the one that uh, is kind of still hanging out there that is just invisible. That's the, that I'd love to see. And there's a couple of uh, the things he did for. Uh, Japanese television that uh, not just, I mean, obviously any of the documentaries you made would be interesting to see, but there are, there's at least a movie and maybe it was a made for TV movie, but something that 
he was in, and I can't remember the name right off the top of my head, unfortunately, but I know that it had Julia Sally in it too, who was his uh, frequent co-producer and, and, and co-star in films. Uh, and we've seen a still from it uh, was, was, has been printed before, but uh, I would be curious to see a couple of those things that he, he did for Japanese, Japanese television, television. Yeah, yeah. around the time he did Beast of the Magic Sword. Is that true, by the way? I, I don't know if this is true or not, but did he even end up doing a Fu Manchu movie? Oh, not an entire movie, no. In Howl okay. the Devil, uh, one of the, one of the characters that he well the the character that he plays in Howl of the Devil is uh, he he dresses up uh, he he dresses up in different costumes for different roles that this this character played on the stage and one of them is uh, Fu Manchu so he gets to dress up in the, the Fu Manchu uh, drag for uh, one you know for just one scene in that particular movie there's a lot there's a lot of that in Howl of the Devil where he he makes himself up as these classic movie characters that this act you know this actor character portrayed on stage and uh, so no he didn't make a Fu Manchu movie but uh, he did uh, he did wear that makeup as a character within another film and I do want to say here Ed, for your listeners too who are curious about Paul Nash films I would recommend if they can get their hands on the two films I mean they're easy to find because they're both out on Blu-ray now watch back to back Horror Rises from the Tomb and Panic Beats because those are the two films that. Paul Nash, he had a character who, you know, didn't make near as many, he didn't make as many films as the Valdemar Daninsky films, but he had a character called Alaric Jamarnak, who uh, is just pretty much pure evil. Uh, wasn't, wasn't, you know, this is not the sad sack werewolf character. You know? no. This is just a real, real evil guy. Yeah, this is a demon in human form. Yeah. What this guy was. And so Horror Rises from the Tomb is the first film featuring the character of Alaric Jamarnak. And then years later, he made a film called Panic Beach, which is really enjoyable too. Uh, where Alec Dermarnak as more of a character that sort of haunts the proceedings, you know, that's going on. It's, it's, I don't want to say more than that to spoil. Uh, so I just recommend those two films to, together, the kind of mini Alaric Dermarnak saga are a lot of fun to watch together. That's true. Uh, by the way, I have to say, you've sold me that I now need to see Howl of the Devil. I was already interested because, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not only a fan of Nashi, but I also am a big fan of Carolyn Monroe, and I didn't oh, even know oh, yeah. he She's made great. a movie with Carolyn Monroe. Absolutely. You know, the great yeah. hammer scream queen. But, uh, you, you know, I also wanted to ask, uh, if you had to choose a Nashi film where he's not necessarily the main character, because there's a few of those, I think The Hanging Woman, um, mm -hmm. The yeah. People Who Own the Dark, uh, what would you say is the most interesting of his roles where he isn't necessarily front and center? For me, it's definitely the people who own the dark because yeah, it is an exception. One. It's an exceptional film just yeah. on its own. And uh, his, his, he, he's very good in it and this, you know, in this supporting role. And, but the thing is, everybody is, everybody in the film is very good. It's a, it's a hell of a movie. And it's one of those, it's one of those things from the mid seventies that uh, when you see it, it's not hard to understand that it was made in the 70s. I'll just leave it at that. But at the same time, it's also kind of amazing that it's not better known. It's just a really good film. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, interesting, it. too, because uh, I think that was Leon Kilmanovsky that made that. Kilmanovsky, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's fascinating because you can start with Nashi movies and then he's like a gateway into these other filmmakers uh, oh, like, yeah. like Leon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, the the films that Leon Klamowski made with Paul Nashi uh, are some of the best of his seventies work. And uh, the, uh, the 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 joy of that is that once you start watching Klamowski's films that don't even that don't even involve Paul Nashi, you start finding some really fun little films as well. So, so in closing, what what do you want to uh, 
say uh, to my listeners in regards to maybe plugging your podcast or just uh, how do you want them to walk away from this conversation? What do you hope they get out of it? Um, obviously, I guess we want them to watch Paul Nashy movies, but anything else <laughs> you want to say yeah. in closing? Yeah, that is the goal. Watch Paul Nashy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, uh, gosh, that's a, um, yeah, I, I think just go into them with the kind of, uh, you know, go into them with just be, let the, let the experience wash over, you know, depending on, again, it kind of depends on what your experience and your, your, how much you, you know, delved into European horror films, but they very much their own, you know, their own universe, their very own feel. And, and so, uh, uh, kind of realize that sometimes the, the atmosphere and the the visuals and, and the visceral uh, visceral excuse me uh, experience is going to override sometimes uh, logic, you know, and and uh, linear plot line and that sort of thing. <laughs> true, yeah, true. They're they're their own thing. I guess what I would uh, I would I would just mirror what tr- what Troy was saying there, and also point out that be careful because if uh, you get hooked on this stuff, they're oh, like boy. peanuts. You're just gonna want you're gonna want to <laughs> gobble them up, man. Watch, yeah, I was gonna, watch, I was yeah. gonna say you guys are really into Nashi. I mean, not only have you done uh, so like years worth of episodes for the Nashi cast, but I think you've done some audio commentaries on the DVD and Blue releases too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah we've got several, several, several on the films that you mentioned here tonight. We've got several out there. Um, uh, got a couple more we've done that we can't mention right now. That you know, uh, not necessarily Nashi films, but yes and no on those. You know, we got some more that haven't been announced. So yeah, that that was something that just. When we got into this, we had no idea that it would lead to that. But of course, we were thrilled, have been thrilled with all those that we've been able to to do. Uh, that was, but that was a sideline that was not uh, we didn't expect to come. But it's been very gratifying, you know, to put this work into it and then to get to do something where you're a permanent part of a, you know, of an actual uh, Blu-ray release of a Paul Nashi film. And then just the fact that just all the friends we made, contacts we made, uh, relationships we built through doing the podcast, including with Paul Nashi's, you know, family, and it's just a uh, been a very gratifying experience for sure so so uh yeah yeah i would i would i would say just uh don't you know what you did echo what rod said about you know if, if this becomes an addiction you know uh don't blame us uh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> are we the gateway drug is that no, we are the saying? gateway that's right yeah. we're the pushers. yeah i think you guys even have the beyond nashy cast too yeah yeah oh yeah yeah those are, that's where we uh we we wanted to also cover uh sort of connected and sometimes not so connected Spanish horror movies produced uh, not just during the the uh, the years of Paul Nashi's uh, greatest achievements, but uh, just uh, even even later movies. We even we even talked about a number of films in the uh, from the 21st century. Just uh, Spanish horror in general, just to uh, to kind of broaden out the overview of uh, the whole the whole phenomena that exists there. It's uh, I, it, I it's love great. that you guys did an episode on Sleep Tight. I wish more people knew oh, about that movie. That's a good oh, one. That 2011, I think. Yeah. Yeah, great, great movie. One of those that, uh, yeah, that that's a movie that I that I, I, I as soon as you as soon as you watch it, you realize, man, this really should be better known. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is a good film. Yeah. I would also uh, just push uh, urge people towards uh, listening to uh, Rod. Rod has another podcast called The Bloody Pit which is a much more freeform, open-ended, just all sorts of subjects, you know, film related mostly. But, uh, and I've, I've, I've been on probably about a third of those episodes, but he's had all kinds of great guests on there just talking about all kinds of film subjects. So that's called the bloody pit. So I, I would uh, recommend listeners to check that one out for sure. Okay. We're currently Rod and I on that, on that podcast, the bloody pit, we're currently doing a series on the forties universal horror films. 
and we'll probably be doing it for the rest of our lives. Because, uh, <laughs> it's it's a bunch of films. I think we've been doing it for several years now. We're only up to 1943. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of and of course, uh, the Bloody Pit and the Nashy Cast are uh, they're both pretty much on all the major um, podcast platforms. If people just want to Google it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a it's kind of a shock. The I was it was several years ago when I suddenly realized, oh crap, we're on Spotify. How did we? What? what? How did this happen? We're, yeah. yeah, we're yeah, we're 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 everywhere. Just whatever way you listen to podcasts, just throw the title of the show in there and it's going to pop up. Yeah. Uh, just before you go to, uh, I wanted to ask, because you had mentioned it and I almost forgot to ask, um, uh, what was, how did you first come in contact with Nashi's family, his son? Um, and what do they think about how there's sort of this, you know, continued fandom around him? Well, you know, the, the main kind of person who's the caretaker of, you know, he has the two sons, Bruno and Sergio and Sergio is, is really the, the uh, kind of, the, I think, really kind of oversees a lot now of, of yeah. licensing the properties and just kind of help keep uh, his father's name out there. And I know he's very appreciative of efforts from, you know, artists and us. And he's just been really uh, expressed a lot of gratitude towards, you know, what we've done and what a lot of people done to to get his, his father's name and work out there. Uh, we interviewed Sergio pretty early on. Yeah. And, um, First and year, I think it was probably was it a was it Elena that got us in contact with him? Yeah. yeah but there's a. a, a, a show that was called uh, horror rises from spain and uh um it was a, a podcast that kind of already existed i think because she found us because she saw what we were doing and she was doing yeah. her own spanish uh podcast about uh about spanish horror and um uh she was been great to to really help translate a lot of stuff for us the poor thing she she would send us translation she would send us audio pronunciations you know audio recordings to help with our pronunciations of names and it just didn't really stick out unfortunately we're, we're terrible we, we can't get the names right but my feeling is again it's been several years but i believe that she may have been the one who put us in contact with sergio because i think when you we know, did was it when we did hell was it when we did hell of the devil i think because sergio was in that yeah might have been the one that we wanted just wanted his i did ask him some questions and we yeah. sent her the questions in English and she translated them to Spanish right. so that he could. But then Sergio speaks perfectly good English. So, yeah. 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 His English has, I think, gotten so much better as it's gone on over the years, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so he's, uh, so, uh, yeah, if my memory serves, that's how we, we first got in contact with him. But, uh, but yeah, we've interviewed him a few other times, just gotten his input on, cause he was in several of his father's films. Yeah. Uh, which, which makes him a great contact just yeah. to find out things from, you know, about the behind the scenes stuff mm-hmm. on how the films got made. It's, yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah. What what's the craziest uh, behind the scenes stories that you know of um, concerning Paul Nashy? Well, knowing how the devil's the one where the whole cast got sick and we're all like, uh, did yeah. they all got food poisoning, you know? And so just you know, the entire cast and crew spent the day throwing throwing up all over. The, you know? still, yeah, it's still getting it's still getting some stuff shot because they had to, and they were just you know, they they you know. One cast or crew member would just go over behind a tree and throw up, and then come back, and then we get back to work. And uh, that's 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 an amusing behind the scenes story that right there. But but also, I think I think my favorite is probably uh, the one the one that I'm always amused by, which is uh, when he was uh, when he was producing films, when he was getting films produced in Japan. Uh, he had to he, he had a harsh lesson in realizing that uh, he had to be careful in what he wrote down because those people took him seriously. Um, in Beast of the Magic Sword, he described a katana that was uh, made of silver. And uh, at a certain point, they're they're in pre-production and they're getting everything. And he they they tell him, "Hey, we're gonna we've got the sword, we've got the sword made," and they bring it to him and show it to him, and he realizes they've actually made the damn thing out of silver, real silver. It's a silver sword. 
And he goes, "You did? Why did you do that? That's insanely expensive." And they're like, "Well, that's what you said." And he goes, "Yeah, but you don't. You can make." But they, no, 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 no. no. This you, you said, silver sword is a silver <laughs> sword, and here it is. And of course, at the end of production, they gave him the sword. So it's it's there. It, it's still in his home. Sergio, Sergio still has it, and it's one of those moments where you're just like, "Wow, <laughs> holy crap!" <laughs> There's a story on. I'm sorry, I was going to say, on Horror Rises from the Tomb, it always cracks me up. They, they, they accidentally burned down the ancient tree that, you know, there was <laughs> yes. like the opening scene of, of, of Horror Rises from the Tomb takes place where, you know, the Alaric de Marnac and his evil consort are, you know, are being executed by this old tree. And apparently this was just some historic ancient tree that went back to the beginning of time or something, you know, and they, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they did a filming there. And I don't think they realized at the time that they had actually said it, like it burned down, like they somehow managed to catch the thing on fire and burn it. Burned it, burned yeah. it down. Yeah. So I just sheepishly walk away like, oh, okay, great. We just, what do we do now? Just yeah. burn a historic, you know, <laughs> Who do we apologize to now. <laughs> and just the whole story of the writing of that, like Rod mentioned earlier that he, he basically took some sort of hallucinogens or something and because he found out he had to write this, script and stay up for 24 hours to had to have the script ready in 24 hours when the producer asked him so he just you know took took things to speed or who knows all sorts of things to stay awake and i think that really translates into that film it's i think a fever can, dream, it is yeah. a fever dream of a film so i think you can just picture him you know <laughs> out of his mind writing this amazing story it's funny because I, i'm glad that i got to ask you about uh the the behind the scenes stuff at the end here because you know, in a way, I think he's an inspirational figure uh, for mm. filmmakers because he, he reminds me of like the rebel guerrilla filmmaker yeah. in the sense that, you know, this is a guy who I mean, these are independent films, essentially, you know, they're not yeah. oh, big yeah. studio efforts and he just cranked him out. And, yep. you know, uh, I think he's inspirational for that reason, too, if you're really into filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And the fact that when he started to direct his own films, we always talked about how it's kind of the surprise, you know, beginning with Inquisition, which you mentioned earlier, which is the first film he directed, that if you had expectations that he was going to just start directing more werewolf and monster films, and then, no, it was actually a while before he even made a werewolf film. He, he's, his first films were ones that really just pissed a lot of people off because he really he really undertook some dangerous and, and controversial subjects that got him in a lot of trouble but it's another reason why i find it really admirable you know because he again it kind of that what you mentioned about the gorilla kind of rebel side of him there that uh you know that that uh that really it kind of butted heads with the authorities and and really just kind of followed his own views and didn't do what you didn't do what was probably really would have been the smarter things to have done to try yeah. and like make more commercial films he made more personal films uh that like i said kind of got him in some hot water uh, you remember Paul Nash is a man who in 1977 made a film called The Transsexual. Yeah. And this was not some kind of staring look at transsexuals. No. This was a serious drama where he was taking the subject seriously. Mm -hmm. And this is in Spain in 1977. He was courting danger yeah. Yeah. all the time. Well, I want to thank you again, Rod and Troy, for coming on Parallax Views. And I hope that everyone checks out the Nashy cast. Yeah, thanks, JJ. We've had a good time doing this. Thank you very much. Well, that does it for this spooky season edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Troy Gwynn and Rod Barnett of the Nashy cast. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon. 
at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax. You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of the year in our old Celtic lands and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices are part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft? To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. And... Happy Halloween.